This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday, it's the 6th of December. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot, and today I'm giving you just a taster of my latest deep dive into the history of the educational present with the history of outdoor education. I'm also rather ill, hence the short version. Anyway, relax, listen to the music, I'll be back. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Dramatic music playing. Right, people, as I explained on Twitter, this morning, my blood glucose has been absolutely uncontrollable for the last 72 hours. So this is going to be a brief preview of the joys of outdoor education. Um, I'm not an outdoorsy person myself. I have no problem with outdoor education. Seems rather nice. Whatever. There we go. But in doing this research, it's been a, one of the more hilarious deep dives I've ever done because the history of education is tied up with the history of some of the most unusual thinking of uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. So today, I'm just going to start us off with um, a speech given to um, a school in 1895 about the current system of education. So I'll ignore the main bit. We start off with how all education so far has been perverse and anti-natural. Anti-natural is the big phase here. Outdoor education, as it's developed in the 17th, not 17th, in the 18th, but mostly 19th and early 20th century is all about natural education for the natural human being. What could be more wholesome? Let's see what we have to hear about the wholesome education available if you have a lovely natural education, not an anti-natural education. Happy is the child who has an opportunity for an outdoor education. The things a child may learn out of doors without other teacher than nature are by no means insignificant. He may watch the ant hollowing out his underground chambers and storing away the winter supply of food and learn lessons of industry and frugality. Now, I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of my childhood looking at ants or my brother, looking at my brother and his endless campaign to kill all the ants that existed. And I'm not sure I ever noticed them storing away their winter supply of food and learn lessons of frugality from it. But let's carry on. The, the oriole building its nest the spider weaving its web, the caterpillar spinning in its cocoon are nature's teachers from whom he can learn lessons as valuable as any he can find in books. Again, not sure that's really true. Uh, The mole mole ploughing its furrow in the garden, the earthworm making soil, the fly consuming rubbish, the bee gathering honey, the squirrel cracking nuts, the grass putting forth its tiny blades higher and higher from day to day, the flower budding and unfolding in its blossoms, the tree putting out its leaves, the vice twisting along, oh, vine rather, twisting along its support, the green moss decorating the grey rock or decaying stump, the variegated mould in some damp neglected corner, uh, what, do tell us what the damp variegated mould is going to tell us, into which 
Only the curious owls of childhood peep, and the veritable menagerie of centipedes and crickets, land snails and slugs, thousand-legged worms, big and little bugs of many sorts, mushrooms, stunted weeds, animal and vegetable forms too numerous to mention, and yet he seems to be mentioning them, revealed by turning over a flat stone or an old plank, these and a thousand other objects and activities of nature afford an unceasing foundation for the most charmingly interesting study, amusement, entertainment and instruction for the child. <laughs> Matt is pointing out that worms don't have legs. Yeah, Matt, I can see that some of the biology lessons children are learning from nature's greatest teachers, hashtag spiders and moles, are not maybe particularly useful for any kind of taxonomic system of biology. Clearly didn't learn much from his bug viewing, indeed. But he's been waxing, waxing rhapsodic about what children will learn from this. Um, but of course, we can't just stick children in gardens. It's 1895. Discovery learning biology is terrifying. Yes, Matt, I think it is. If all of your um, knowledge of human morality and, and scientific principles comes from looking at moles and spiders, I'm not sure where we end up. But in fact, I'm going to tell you where we end up because I'll explain to you who it is speaking in a moment and what exactly he instituted on the basis of his natural rather than anti-natural education. Um, let's remember it's 1895, so we have... Uh, mass public education in both the United Kingdom and the United States where this is being written. So while we have lots of dilettante theorists of education uh, writing throughout the 18th century, my favourite century, um, and my favourite set of weirdo educational theorists, in the 19th century, because the poor are being educated en masse, um, we have an awful lot of people coming up with alternative systems for educating the poor, and an awful lot of um, cranks. An awful lot of people with very strange theories. So what does this mean for the classroom? Let's find out. But for a practical education nowadays, it's not necessary to turn the child outdoors. Phew, because, you know, the nation's young people, there's maybe not room to shove them all into fields to look at moles. Or at least it's not necessary to keep him out all the time. That Which is, <laughs> I quite like the idea that you just let children outside for eight hours a day. There you go, school done. The spirit of reform is in the air. The evils of old systems are being discovered and rooted out. Nature study, as has been conducted in our school during the past year, and as it may be conducted, the teaching of mathematics and other abstract sciences sciences is, connect, yeah, is connection with concrete things. All right, so I'm sure Matt's going to love this. So we can't put the children in fields with ants to learn about principles of, of the seasons. So instead, we've tried to bring that to the classroom. Have we tried to bring that to the classroom? For example, we teach arithmetic in connection with miniature house building. I don't, I'm not, not even sure how that works. Let's think about it. Mathematics with, <laughs> Matt's saying, trail of sugar always brings the ants into the classroom. This is so true. All those moments when wasps, come into the classroom and ruin the lesson. We've been missing the point all along. That's how we should have taught them geometry or something. I don't, I don't really know. Anyway, if anyone wants to design a building houses to teach maths module, I will be extremely excited about that. Uh, right, so let's see. Uh, 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 in connection with amateur agriculture, that's my favorite kind of agriculture, the amateur kind, <laughs> measuring off of the plat of land to be planted and determining in its area measuring the depth at which the seed is planted, measuring the sprout and the stems as the crop grows. So there you go. There's all your maths taken care of. 
So many learning opportunities missed, I know. Just You just had to get a tape measure or a ruler out, and that was your math sorted. Job done, really. That's that's all that maths is, measuring whole depth. Um, or learning language by describing orally and in writing the things observed in the study of natural objects, nature study in the fields, training in accuracy and conscientiousness in the various kinds of, new word, everyone, sloid. Yeah. I'm going to talk to you about sloid in just a minute. Can do that in biology too. Um, there is a, a, when I do the longer version of this next week, I will be talking about how um, a lot of these theories made their way into mainstream British education in um, the 70s and 80s. My dad was a primary school teacher from the time I was born until you know, a decade ago when he retired. And some of the some of the fashions in primary education very much of this so like dad would do say a unit on romans and then all the learning was tied into romans so if you did maths it was related to roman road construction and then you know literally all of this stuff so this idea that practical application of abstract skills and knowledge would be the way in which children would magically learn um yeah doesn't go away but today but more it, in more detail next week I'm going to be looking at some of the very weird thinking that goes along with that. Um, and when I say weird, sometimes it's just funny, like gnomes are funny. Objectively speaking, thinking that gnomes are an important part of education is hilarious. But quite often it's deeply unpleasant. Um, and then sometimes it's actively genocidal, excitingly. Uh, this nature education, it will not surprise you to know if you know much about the late 19th and early 20th century, goes hand in hand with eugenics tasty delicious eugenics we can probably learn maths from that too um, and also as we'll see a vigorous commitment to stopping masturbation so there we go right so learning languages blah 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 right sloyd we wrap the various kinds of sloyd there is paper sloyd there is pasteboard sloyd there is basket sloyd there is wood and sewing sloyd these reforms were all immense advances over the old rope teaching and make the schoolroom a heaven for the child instead of a doleful place from which he is longing to escape to the woods and join some wandering gypsy party. Okay. The child is born a, um, just, I'm going to say GRT, thank you very much for the racist language there, a GRT traveller and the woods ought to be one of his regularly appointed schoolrooms. Right. So the child naturally belongs in the forest, learning that way. Um, and we can use sloyd to bring the forest in, or as Matt suggests, sugar. So there's an awful lot to unpack here. Let's learn about sloyd as I did yesterday. I thought it was a typo when she says, let's learn about sewing sloyd. All right, sloyd, word you made up, Mr. 1895 educationist? Oh no. So sloyd is um, like Lloyd with an S in front of it, or Floyd with an S instead. Um, it comes from the Swedish sloyd, with a, a J, um, also known as educational sloyd, and it's a system of handicraft-based education started in Finland in 1865. It was immensely popular, um, especially in the United States, where, as you can see, our educationist here is all about the sloyd, the paper sloyd. Paper sloyd, as we'll see, is quite important to the development of your sloyd skills. I should probably stop and tell you exactly what sloyd is. Right. Sloyd, uh, educational Sloyd's purpose was formative and that it was thought the benefits of handicrafts in general built the character of the cup child, encouraging moral behaviour, greater intelligence and industriousness. 
Sloyd had a noted impact on the early development of manual training, manual arts, industrial education and technical education. Um, to start with paper Sloyd, which was one that little children were encouraged to begin with, um, that would basically be folding paper, making shapes, um, you know, folding the square into triangles, this sort of business. The logic here is that, quotation, observation is quickened, eyes are trained to see right lines and distances, thus aiding in free drawing, free hand drawing and writing, while the hand and wrist muscles being used for a definite purpose unconsciously become obedient assistants. Um, obviously, early childhood education, enormously about uh, learning small hand motions, fine motor skills, all of those things. That's very, very important in early early childhood foundation studies, EYFS settings, do not mean to dismiss that tool. What I would call your attention to is the fact that it comes bundled with an idea about philosophy and morality. So if we go back to the initial description, encouraging moral behaviour, greater intelligence and industriousness. The thing about Sloyd is it's not intended as proto-technical um, education. It's not part of, um, you know, a whole child education that focuses on training vocational skills for a vocational pathway. Instead, it's a universally taught practice with the idea that it makes children into, into better people. Sorry, I just see Matt's comment, dicking about with paper. Yes, Matt, and you've just offended all of Scandawija because it's still very much practiced there, right? Um, it's still a compulsory part of education in Finland, Denmark, Sweden and Norway. So, and there it's very much designed around use of the knife. Now, when it was, uh, I'll just read this, I know some of this I've got from Wikipedia, which is always a great place, place to start kids, don't believe your teachers. Uh, this is lovely. Educational Sloyd as practiced in Sweden started with the use of the knife. The knife was controversial when Sloyd was first introduced into the UK. Educators in London and the other cities of the UK could hardly imagine putting knives into the hands of juveniles. Well, indeed. But carving, doing, <laughs> we've seen their piece of scores, says Matt. Uh huh. But do we know about their moral development as better human beings? How is that Sloyd and building miniature houses? change them into greater spiritual humans and more intelligent people <laughs> we'll find out um i'm going to play the news and then i'm going to take us back to um, our initial american educator who was talking about sloyd and all the different kinds of how, how the children would be doing basket sloyd perhaps my least favorite sounding sloyd i'm not a crafty person and i have to say this sounds like hell but before we go to the news i will just say that one of the relics of this sloyd based education um that was in my life was the first play school I went to and I was how old was I mother two three. three I was three years old that's good to know for the bit of the story I'm about to tell you the main thing the only thing I can remember and the most exciting thing about the play school on Gold Hill Common in Chamonson Peter Buckinghamshire was they had a tree stump in the middle of it just a big hacked up tree stump covered in nails not child friendly nails just great big nails that had been partially hammered in and then around the tree stump were a range of hammers, literal hammers, claw hammers, that you, <laughs> you picked up as a three-year-old and smacked the nails in yourself. And you got to learn valuable... There were also boxes of nails. Oh, there were also boxes of nails, Mother's saying. That's exciting. 
<laughs> and that's how we learned to be better human beings in the 70s. Right. Well, my mother is pointing out, as she is legally obliged to do, that I went to Oxford. That now you can imagine how me ever going shopping with my mother goes, that the fact that I went to Oxford comes into every single conversation that has ever existed. Butchers once. She went to Oxford, you know. Right. Your boys still do that in nursery. No. Lesson copy is saying, Nathan, that the claw hammers and stumps with no supervision. Really? I think you might consider a different nursery. I'm just saying it could go badly wrong. All right, let's listen to Gail Glenn with the news. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The Children's Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, has warned the Prime Minister not to close schools in response to the Omicron variant, despite cases in the UK reaching 160. Speaking on the Andrew Marr show, she said, Lockdown was a terrible time for the whole nation. It's also why I think we must not close schools again. We must not. I would urge the Prime Minister not to close schools. The children want things back to normal. They took a huge hit for us. We must not close schools again. And my head teacher colleagues across the country are incredibly good at managing this situation. I watched them rush to support the most vulnerable. And I would definitely advise not to do this if there is any other option. 280,000 children were recorded absent from school on November the 25th. 2.6% of all pupils in England. Wrexham Council have supported young leaders in a project called Healthy Minds Haven, which is designed to improve mental well-being in school communities. There will be an event on the 15th of December to which senior leadership teams will be invited when they will learn how their school can become a healthy minds haven. Interim Clinical Service Manager from North Wales CAMS, School Inreach Service, Sophie Gorst, will speak about why she is supporting the campaign aim to improve mental health support for young people in schools. This has been your daily education news briefing. Right, we're back on a very short show today that's just uh, an introduction to... Oh, sorry, one second. This. Just an introduction to something I'll be doing more about next week, which is the history of um, outdoor education, both the positive aspects of it, but also some of the underlying theory, which is, as I was explaining before, always tied up with very specific ideas about the socialisation, philosophical basis, psychological development, and... Um, Moral, moral development of human children. So we've been looking at Sloyd, the, the Scandinavian system that um, started in Finland for teaching um, knife-based and other craft-based techniques as the foundation of education in order to encourage not only fine motor skills, which is how I think we talk about it here, but also the moral development of the child. Now I started <laughs> with um, our introduction to Sloyd was from the man who was suggesting that in his schools, 
children observe nature and learn everything else from it. So tiny houses from which they learn maths, etc. The man who wrote that and was delivering that address in 1895 was Mr. Kellogg, Mr. Cornflakes Kellogg. Um, now, he's an interesting figure. This is one I think a lot of you might know already. But if you don't, let's find out a little bit. <laughs> Matt knows, and Matt has written something that I can't read. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to, I'll tell you the, the cleaned up version of it. Um, John Harvey Kellogg, who invented the cereal cornflakes with his brother, was a sort of prophet of hygiene in 20th century America. But although he championed nutrition and a holistic approach to the overall health of the average American, Kellogg was also a staunch eugenicist and launched a violent anti-masturbation campaign that saw the genitals of young boys and girls mutilated. If illicit commerce of the sexes is a heinous sin, Kellogg wrote, self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. And in plain facts for old and young, embracing the natural history and hygiene of organic life, Kellogg catalogued 39 symptoms of a person plagued by masturbation, including general infirmity, defective development, mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, boldness, bashfulness and boldness, that's an exciting combination, bad posture, stiff joints, fondness for spicy foods, mm -hmm, acne, palpitations, and, <laughs> and finally, epilepsy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you are too funny. Matt Benderveed, have to say your name at least once out loud. Uh, Matt's saying, surely, I'm just going to pad out Matt's thing, I'll just back in my day. Surely if, if Kellogg is, is really interested in developing fine motor skills and strong wrist and hand action, then masturbation was perfectly developmentally appropriate. Good point, Matt. Uh, Kellogg was so completely opposed to sex that he and his wife slept in separate bedrooms and adopted all their children. Um, yeah. Yeah, that chap there is pointing out strong prelapsarian game going on here. Is Miss Snuffy listening? Well, absolutely. The, as much as I like to get into fights with, with Catherine Bebblesing online, she is absolutely right that there is a whole train of education based on this notion of Edenic pre-fall children um, who, left to their own devices, would be wandering around woods vigorously not masturbating because they were doing some weaving. Uh, that's the most important thing. Uh, Christian fundamentalist, he's a Seventh-day Adventist. So, um, that a, a very, a very specific and quite, yeah, exactly, R. Yeah, we'll just R at that. And again, this and more next week when I go into this properly. Um, so I'm going to skip from Kellogg and his um, use of Sloyd to encourage vigorous lack of, of masturbation and also math through tiny houses and looking at ants. Um, and then just touch on some of the other things I'll be looking at. Steiner schools. Um, a lot of great things about Steiner schools, again, child-centred, building in the outside, lots of handcrafts and stuff. But when I look at Steiner schools next week, I'm going to be looking at the inclusion of gnomes in Steiner schools and how important the theory of anthroposophy, the esoteric spiritual movement, based on the notion that humans can objectively, that there are objectively comprehensible spiritual realm that exists and can be observed by humans, right? So that... Steiner's early childhood education, the bits we take from it, the bits that come from the outdoor education and crafting focus um, are one thing. And then there's the whole keep children innocent of evil reading and abstract education so that they can communicate with the um, abstract, but very real spiritual world outside 
where there are an enormous number of gnomes. Excellent. Yeah, there's gnomes in Wardorf schools as well, aren't there? I think, Matt. <laughs> Bear gnomes, says Matt. Bear gnomes, so many gnomes. Which they don't tell you when people say Steiner schools are great, they don't mention the insistence that there's an abstract but very real spiritual realm with um, elven folk in it. The last thing I'm going to touch on before I um, I log off at 7.30 Truncated Show today, because again, my body is a broken husk, is um, the Woodcraft folk. Um, I'll be looking at them too. They were founded in 1925. Um, I was introduced to the Woodcraft folk because, see, my mum, who's American, um, in the 80s, all her friends and she were all, you know, like everybody I knew in the 80s, anti-Margaret Thatcher, into the campaign for nuclear disarmament. I spent a weekend at Greenham once. We did the march across the country for, you know, to get rid of nuclear arms. Everyone was a social worker or a teacher or something. So there were real crunchy granola lefties in the 80s. Um, but my mum was American and not quite the same. So she sent me some brownies and girl guides, which I lasted at for about three months in both because I wanted to go to them. But the other parents in her social circle would not countenance such induction into a fascist way of being. So that, that's their logic here. Um, the fact that you had to swear allegiance to the Queen was a big no for uh, Jenny and Eileen in 1983. So <coughs> they um, sent their children to the Woodcraft folk instead. So the Woodcraft folk were founded in 1925 and the idea of justice and social equality and progressive reform and sort of like vaguely Scandinavian social justice, socialism stuff built into that. Um, Woodcraft folk I heard about from uh, a woman I met in the mid nineties who used to sing me the songs from them. No, I won't sing this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna recite you the lyrics that she learned while I was learning my guide songs. I like the flowers. I like the vegetables. I don't like reactors. I know they're evil. I want to live in a nuclear free society no plutonium, no plutonium, no plutonium, no. <laughs> Which I kind of adore. This child of a Labour councillor who went on to be a Labour peer. Um, all of them chanting desperately in a wood somewhere in uh, the northeast about how they would not allow plutonium near them. Doesn't scam well, no, or rhyme particularly well. Uh, there's, there's some other lovely Woodcraft folk ones that um, I was just going to read you one because... This is the Elfin Creed, 1960s and 70s, which Sarah didn't have. She was too, they were too busily focused on saying no to plutonium at that point. Unlike the guides, we were just totally pro-plutonium, just constantly. Couldn't get us away from this stuff. <coughs> this one. I will grow strong and straight like the pine, supple of limb like the hare, keen of eye like the eagle. I will seek health from greenwood, skill from crafts, and wisdom from those who will show me wisdom. I will be a worthy comrade in the Green Company and a loyal member of the world family. And uh, for pioneers, for these things shall I strive, a keen eye, a seeing hand, a body that fails not, an arm that is strong and willing to serve, a mind that yearns to understand, a spirit that searches for truth and loves the silent places, a heart that is courageous and bears goodwill to all men. The last line was seen by some as sexist and the ending was changed to and bears goodwill to all yeah. <laughs> so I would just say they're deeply ableist as well. But and that takes us back to as I wrap up um, and, and 
leave you hanging on the excitement of what you might have to look forward to this week if today's preview involved anti-masturbation miniature houses and things that ants can teach us. Um, this idea of the healthy mind and the healthy body is inextricably tied to eugenicist um, models throughout the 19th and early 20th century. There is no room for not being a strong, straight, in multiple senses of the word, healthy, strong-armed, clear-eyed. You know that that goes with blue-eyed, blonde-haired, um, Aryan child, leaping in Swiss mountains, learning things with your knives. You know. Anyway, so that's it for today. I hope that that has made you want to listen next week. Again, sorry for being too um, physically broken to properly do that. What I should have... Oh, dear Lord. Um, I'm about to read you another one because that's what I should have done. If I had gone to the Woodcroft folk, then I wouldn't be a disabled person who sometimes just cannot do an eight-hour deep dive on education on a Sunday night. Listen, O oh Woodcroft folk, for that is the law of fellowship I proclaim. Learn to grow strong like the pine. Keep yourself, ready, supple and clean. The idea of cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness, physical cleanliness, emotional cleanliness, philosophical cleanliness, they are always tied to the theoretical roots of these movements as they developed. Has no bearing on whether or not there is deeply useful stuff to learn from it in terms of skills development and eye-hand coordination and small motor skills and stuff. What I am interested in is the underlying eugenicist um, or let's let's go with some uh, hashtag woke language, cis-heteronormative ideology underpinning it. Um, yes, keep yourself supple and clean. Read the great book of nature. Be hearty, happy and keen. Work when there is work to be done. Be helpful to all those in need. Be faithful and true to your word. And pure in thought, word and deed. I have spoken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but cleanliness, purity, not masturbating, hideous genital mutilation in the case of Kellogg, um, knife work in the case of um, Sweden. We're going to be looking at all those things next week and looking at some of the things bundled with them. It, it made one reader want to read on. Matt, just imagine if I'd use sibilance, how much more you'd want to read on, because everyone knows that the main way to excite a reader and, and make them want to read on is by the use of alliteration. It's so much more. Do you know why? Because it sounds snaky, Matt. And that, that makes the reader feel interested when it sounds snaky. It's, like, it's a well-known thing. All right, guys, thank you very much for joining me today for my very truncated show. I hope it has been entertaining and I hope you spend the next week sending me very, very weird um, lines from educational practice about purity, cleanliness, eugenics, sexual desire and knife work. And don't forget the word um, sloid. Try and use it this week in all your lessons. Do some sloid, kids. Bring the sloid into your academic work. Bye, everyone. I'll see you next week. Do an ad. Oh, uh, my mother is telling me, reminding me that I should do an ad. So I will close you out with this ad, this non-Sloyd-based ad. One of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three Department for Education validated programs to help you. Read, Write, Incorporated Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. 
To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. It's 7.30 um, and I am off. All right. Bye, guys. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.